Thanks very much, Brandon. Let's keep that open, shall we, and look at that together this evening. If you're not a fancy move a couple of rows nearer, nearer me here, on this side especially, that would be very kind. I know some of you can't move or you're at the back for a good reason because you're cooking. But thank you, Mike and Jill. Um, that'd be great. If, if you, that would be great. Cause it just feels like there's a big gap between me and where you are. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we've just heard of how you alone, by your spirit, uh, give us new hearts, uh, rebirth and renewal. And we pray that um, as only you can help us to understand and to hear your voice and to know you, um, by your spirit, you will help us to do that tonight and give us lives that are good and excellent and profitable for us, but also for everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Elizabeth Gurney was 17 when she wrote in her diary that she really had no religious faith. Uh, but over the following years, she fell in with some Christians in their church and became a Christian, married someone called Joseph Fry, began to minister in the church, in fact, and after that, she then visited a prison in London, Newgate Prison, and some of the women there, and she was so shocked by the conditions in the prison that these women were living in that she then arranged for teams of people to go in and visit those women, to read the Bible with them, and to teach them skills like sewing. Her work led to the Prison Reform Act of 1823, and Elizabeth Fry became known as the Angel of Prison. Closer to home, um, just recently we had an elderly lady at one of our groups taken ill, uh, unexpectedly, uh, to my knowledge not a professing Christian. Several church members made her comfortable, sat with her, prayed with her, um, comforted her until the paramedics arrived and they whisked her to hospital and went with her and made sure she was okay and home safely. She wrote afterwards to say how moved she had been by the care and love of the Christians in the church towards her. You see, many don't realize, we don't realize, do we, the power and the impact of acts of Christian loving kindness and goodness. The impact those, those things have on people around us, whether they're Christians or not. Now in Titus, this letter, we've spent chapters 1 and 2, if you've been here, looking at what is called several times the good life, living the good life in the family. So instructions for women and men and young and old, and also in the society and in the church for Titus and others to be modeling patience and self-control to other believers. But what Paul does now in chapter 3 is he, he turns us, he sends us, if you like, back into the world to talk about the impact that a good life has on what he calls here twice, everyone. And he means there, those out in the society who are not Christians as well. And what we're going to see tonight is that Paul focuses us on how the good life, living what we call as a Christian, matters, but also how living that kind of good life is possible for us. So really, two points out. The first one is this. That the good life is good for everyone. The good life is good for everyone. 
And that's really the, the brackets of this little section. The beginning verses 1 and 2, and the last verse, verse 8. So Paul says in verse 1 to Titus, the church leader, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility, or the, the word that could be gentleness, towards everyone. Now, we know from other writers that the Cretans were notorious for not being obedient, for being rebellious towards authorities, like the, the emperor and the, and the local governors and so on. And we know also that, that that Cretan culture had crept into the church in Crete that Titus is now the pastor of. We saw that back in chapter 1, where he was told um, to tell off those that were being disobedient and rebellious in the church. And the fact that Titus is having to remind them here to be obedient to not just their church leaders, but to the authorities, to the governors, to the emperors, tells us there was an issue, not just in Crete, but in the, the Christian church in Crete, with obeying authorities, the emperor, uh, or for that matter, the local Cretan traffic wardens. And yes, there are times, aren't there, when Christians are called to disobey authority when the name of Christ is at stake. When to obey would be to deny Christ. But actually the command to obey authority is in the teaching of Jesus, it's in the teaching of Paul and of Peter, and here in the instruction to Titus. I am, says Paul through Titus, to obey, to pay my taxes to park legally, not to come in late at night without my parents' permission. And Titus, as well as saying, teach them to obey authority, says, teach them to be ready to do whatever's good. So he kind of, Paul expands it. It's a bit like where Jesus says, go the extra mile if someone says, carry my tunic. Turn the other cheek if someone slaps you on one side. Do whatever is necessary to do good to others around you. And then verse 2, Paul expands again, expands the command again. We are to do good, he says, not just to Christians, not just to authorities, but to everyone. No exceptions here. Not just to those that are nice to us, to those that are gentle to us, but to be gentle to everyone. There are two negative commands in verse 2. Don't slander. Don't quarrel. That's really another way of translating be peaceable. Don't slander. Don't speak badly of others. Don't quarrel. Don't speak badly to others. We've seen before these are defining marks of Cretan culture. Uh, It's putting me off a holiday in Crete, I have to say, reading Titus. Full of slander, full of quarreling. Uh, Speaking badly of other people at school joining in the classroom gossip, arguing at work about who gets the overtime or who makes the coffee today. Things that Paul, is, he knows, are not of primary importance. Don't quarrel, don't slander. Two positives also in verse 2. Be considerate and be gentle. That's considerate. Think of the needs of the other. Again, think of the needs of the people at work in your team at work. Being gentle, that's acting for the good of the other. 
do what you know will bless them. Same words, actually, used of Jesus by Paul in 2 Corinthians, if you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He talks about the kindness and gentleness of Christ. Exactly the same words in the original. Be Christ-like at work, at school, at uni. Now, we've seen this church in Crete. It's a young Christian church. Lots of fires breaking out for Titus to try and extinguish. It's a precarious church, isn't it? Their faith is wobbly. They're easily distracted from the Christian walk. That's why Paul has to keep saying this. Stress these things, he says. That's why in verse 8 he repeats it. I want you, verse 8, to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God, the, the young Christians, you and I, may be careful to devote themselves. It's a nice word. It's to dedicate themselves to doing what's good. These things are excellent. And these, these are real virtues worth treasuring. Excellent and profitable. They're good for everyone. The good life is good, not just for me, for my church, for my family, but for everyone. See that? It's good for society. And these things matter, Paul says, because doing good is good for everyone. That's why Paul's so concerned that we don't just think about the family or the church, but we think about the workplace, the school. And we are dedicating ourselves in Christ to do good for everyone. I think here of someone maybe who just needs that reminder, don't you, that you're not just a teacher, you are a Christian, a Christ-following teacher. You don't just go to work, do you, to pay the bills. You go to work to do good for the culture of your community, for the culture of your staff room at work. We saw back in 2 verse 10, the slaves were called to to godly living. Do you remember why? Verse 10 of chapter 2, to make the teaching about Christ our Savior attractive. We're not just a teacher, an accountant, a graphic designer, a student. We're a Christian, a Christ-following teacher, accountant, student. You're where God has put you, not just to get next week's rent paid, but so that your acts of kindness and gentleness, so that not joining in the staff room slander and backbiting, so that those things that you are living out benefit those around you and bring glory to Christ. Also think here, secondly, others here, you have been kind and gentle for Christ for many years. You need to hear tonight that encouragement that you have shown simple virtues, kindness and gentleness, that are a treasure to Christ because they are the character of Christ. When others spoke ill of you, you met those words with forgiveness. Now, it was tough sometimes to keep being dedicated to showing good works, but with his help, you did that. And you need to hear, don't you, the encouragement that these things are seen by the Lord, they honor the Lord, and they bring good to those around you. You have shown a life that, however flawed you and I are, has had excellence and has been profitable to people. Be encouraged. Our best endeavors 
They're imperfect, they're incomplete, but they're also excellent, says Paul, and profitable. Isn't that wonderful? The good life is for everyone. But here's what we're struggling with, and we saw this last week in chapter 2 as well. How? Because moral rules are great. We like a kind of target. Tell me what to do, Richard. You're a vicar, and I'll, I'll go and try and do it. But actually, we know, don't we, that we quickly can't. We fail. Like the new resolution that lasts till about the 3rd of January. How do we keep this up? How can the good life that's good for everyone be possible? And this is where those middle verses of Paul's here are so important. And they are wonderful verses. And one writer, John Stott, describes this as, as the most succinct summary of the good news in the whole New Testament. Wonderful verses. And, and so here's our second point in verses 3 to 7. That the good life is God's life at work in us. The good life is God's work at work in us. God's life at work in us. See, we are used, aren't we, and I think religion reinforces this, to the self-help model of Christian morality. You hear a sermon about whatever it might be at church, almost anything, and by nature I'm tuned to go, I'm being told to go and try harder. I'm being told to go and do something to be a better person. And the trouble with that is that we know it doesn't work, do we? Our hearts are weak. Our wills are wobbly and frail, and we, we don't go the way we know we're meant to go. And here is why these verses are such good news at exactly that point. Verse 3 starts with, actually in the original, the word for. So Paul says, um, live a good life, kind and gentle. For, he says, the link is, the way I'm going to help you with this is this. Verse 3, how God helps us, and it's because God is a saviour. For, he says, the kindness, he'll go on and say, the kindness and gentleness of, or the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. Verse 4. So he's going to go on and say in this section, this is the challenge and the driving force, the energy, the, the means for that kind of life. I'm going to show you now. For let me explain, he says. And what he does, he centers this whole section here on God, our Savior. The word Savior, the word salvation, common words in this letter. Uh, they're right here. So he says, verse uh, 4, uh, God is our Savior. He appeared, verse 5, he saved us. And that theme of God saving us, salvation, is right there through all these verses. And there are four questions to do with salvation that he explains the answers here. Here's the first question. Put them on the screen for you. The first question, why do we need salvation? Or what do we need saving from? And verse 3 explains, answers, why we need salvation. At one time, says Paul, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. He goes on to say we lived in malice and anger, malice and envy being hated and hating one another. Now, actually, what Paul's saying, it sounds quite brutal, doesn't it? It's a pretty brutal view of human nature, of human life. We were foolish, disobedient, enslaved. 
But actually, deep down, we know he's right, don't we? This is just a simple, clear summary of what the human heart is like without God's help. We know, don't we, deep down, there is no such thing as human free will to live the good life. We don't have that capacity. We are slaves to the evil bias in our hearts that always takes us the wrong way. It tricks us. It makes us wander from God. It enslaves us. Paul says, verse 3, second half, we lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. Again, same idea. Malice, it's, it's wishing ill on someone else. Envy is wishing the good things they have on yourself. He's just saying every form of thinking and doing that's evil, that's ungodly, well, we've done it. In fact, we virtually invented it. Foolish, enslaved, full of malice and envy. That's his summary. John Calvin says on this verse that our hearts are stone. Our hearts are stone before grace finds us. That's an important last four words, before grace finds us. Notice, you see, Paul doesn't say here we are, does he? We are foolish, we are disobedient, we are enslaved. He says, we were. Now that is all the difference, isn't it? We too are like that. We were, but now, he says, it's changed. Because God has saved us. It's not a description of the Christian. This is a description of my life before Christ found me. And so, second question, where does salvation come from? Um, What's changed that description of of me as a human being? Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So again, it's past, isn't it? I was like that, but he saved me, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I couldn't stack up a pile of righteous things good enough anyway, but that's not why he saved me. He saved me because of his mercy mercy overlooked he forgave my weakness and my sinfulness four lovely words actually used of God here aren't there there's kindness verse four there's love the word actually there is philanthropy it's generosity kindness and generosity were used words used in the ancient world when an emperor appeared at a city, visited a city of his and showered his gifts and his laurel wreaths on his adoring people. That's a bit like the queen um, appearing in Norwich city centre and showering knighthoods and OBEs on all of us. And Paul says, no, it's not the emperor, it's God who's appeared and he's showered not just medals and certificates on us, he's showered kindness and generosity and mercy And the fourth word, grace. Kindness, generosity, mercy, verse 5, and grace, verse 7. Instead of insisting we prove our worth to God before he is willing to forgive us, God gave us Christ in grace when we were still far from him. And he gave the righteousness of Christ, God's righteousness in Christ to us freely. God is kind, God is generous, God is merciful, God is a God of grace. 
Those four things in God, those are the source, the where of our salvation. Where does it come from? From God. Third question, how? This is the big one. How does God save us? How does God turn my life around from that slavery, that wickedness that I was in, to where I am today, so that I can live the good life now? How does he do that? Verses 5 and 6 explain Paul says he saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. He saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is the heart of the good news, isn't it? Salvation is not just from the penalty of sin that God forgives Uh, He uses the word here, justifies us, puts us right with himself through Christ's death. It's also that he saves me now, in the present, from the power of sin, from the slavery I was in. The cross of Christ is where he atones for my sins, he pays for them, he sets me free. And here Paul focuses on, on the flip side, the work of the Holy Spirit, God's work in me. The good life is God's life at work in me. He uses three words to describe God's work in me, doesn't he? Washing, rebirth, and renewal. See those all? At verse 5, verse 6. Washing, rebirth, renewal. Perhaps Paul is talking here about water baptism. It's more likely, people think, that he's simply saying what baptism points to. You and I were filthy. Our, our best works were like filthy rags, says the Bible. But then Christ came, and by his Spirit, he's washed me. He's cleansed my heart. Rebirth, the word here, it's the word, you might translate it, being born again. Similar to the word that's used by Jesus in John 3. You must be born again. You could translate it, actually, regeneration. Not what we mean by that today, the kind of civic cleaning up a city centre with some new apartments that probably look tatty in 20 years' time anyway. But this is a, a whole new start, a regenerating of my heart, a recreating of the inner me so that I begin to desire God's things and not the pleasures and passions that I loved before. Charles Wesley described that kind of change in a great hymn of his, Long thy imprisoned spirit lay fast bound enslaved in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a, a ray that brings life. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. That's regeneration described by a hymn writer. I was dead, you brought me to life. I couldn't see you shone into my life. I was bound by sin, but you set me free. The third word is the word renewal. It's a similar word, actually. We talk about renewing a subscription, don't we? That's not really what it means here. Renewal is when God doesn't just extend a period of our life, but he begins a whole new age of life. The age before Christ the age now in Christ, the age of death, the age of life, the age of the old creation, 
crumbling in sin, now the age of the new creation, renewed in Christ, starting with your heart and mine. Washed, given rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul's actually repeating here the words of um, Ezekiel 36. The Old Testament prophecy of this rebirth, this renewal, the new heart that God would give one day by his Spirit. So in Ezekiel, God promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you, wash you, and you'll be clean. I'll give you a new heart, rebirth, and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's uh, renewal. I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So when when we regenerate a place, we, we replace one old, worn set of bricks with a new kind of stone. God takes a heart of stone and replaces it with a, not a heart of a different kind of stone, a heart of flesh. A heart that's alive and able to live his way, the good life. The good life, you see, is simply God's life, God's kindness, God's generosity, God's mercy at work in me. So, last question. And a quick one. We've seen why we need salvation. We were in slavery. Where does it come from? From God and his mercy and grace. How does he save us? By the new birth of my heart. Regeneration. What does God save us for? Well, verse 7 explains that one. So that, this is why God saved me. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, inheritors, having the hope of eternal life. What a great reminder that is, that the Christian good life is not simply a matter of conforming to our society's morals, be nice, respect everyone, much deeper than that. It's it's not just a matter of showing kindness and generosity because that's what people expect, or even that's what people like. We do these things because these are the signs of the children of the Heavenly Father, the inheritors of his kingdom. God our Father has appeared with kindness and generosity and his children inheriting his eternal life live the same way. The good life is simply God's life at work in me. Here's some ways that this might be important for us, some of us here listening tonight. Here's the first one. A reminder for the complacent. I wasn't sure quite what word to use here, but the gospel of what we were humbles me. Because it reminds me, as I look at some people at at work or at school, I think their lives really are a mess. You know, they are so evil, so wicked, so depraved. If only they were good like me. It reminds me that I was like that once. And the only thing that changed me was grace. So it stops me being complacent. It humbles me. And it makes me pray for them, doesn't it? Someone prayed for me that I became a Christian. Someone prayed for you, if you're a Christian, that you would come to faith in Christ. And it makes me pray for those, even those I think are far from Christ, full of malice, hating and being hated. Grace can turn them around too. It makes me pray for them. A word, maybe an encouragement for the despairing here. And I think to myself, am I not still like that first set of descriptions? 
I'm still enslaved to, to some sins in my life. I'm disobedient. I'm hateful towards people, certainly sometimes. Am I making any progress? And my heart despairs, and I think, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Maybe the Spirit's not at work in me at all. I'm not living the good life. And this passage reminds us that when I search my heart, and I see just glimpses of the Spirit's work there, when I see that I may not be where I want to be, but I'm not what I once was, as John Newton says, it lifts my heart that I'm on that journey. I've begun the good life. God's work is at work in God's life is at work in me. Maybe a challenge here to the proud as well. How easily I think to myself, do you know what? I'm really quite good at this Christian thing. I read my Bible every day and I'm a lot less arrogant than I used to be. I'm really quite humble. And my merit in eternity will be all the morality I've shown, all the good things I did at church, the rotors I was on. You should have seen the number of committees I served on. And my legacy is going to be tremendous, the good works I've amassed. And how easily I think those ways. And this reminds us, doesn't it? All I am, I owe to Christ. All I am today, I'm simply because of what he's making me. His kindness and generosity and mercy and grace first picked me out from death to life, from darkness to light, and now are transforming my heart through rebirth. And the last thought, this one. A call to you if you're not yet a Christian, if you're still lost and searching. You see, you and I, we're the same. We all need to be born again. The difference is that because of God's grace, he's done that for me. He did that to me. He gave me new life. And he's has the power and mercy to do it to you too. But you need to ask him. Without Christ, Paul warns here, You or I are enslaved to sin's power, deceived by its trickery, incapable of kindness, truly, and unable to know God. We're fools without him. You and I are going into eternity with no help, in this life or the next, without Christ. So I urge you tonight, if that's you, and you're hearing these words, and you're reading what Paul says, Pray that he will show himself to you. Pray for the new birth. Ask someone to help you to keep searching. Keep coming to this church family, listening and praying. And he will give by grace a new heart, a washing, a rebirth, a renewal by the Spirit. See, the good life we've learned, haven't we now? It's lived not by my power, but by his power at work in me. It's given that God's kindness, God's generosity, that were first embodied in Christ perfectly, can begin to be shown in the lives of his people. For our good, but also for the world's good. So we pray, but we stress these things, as Paul says to each other. So that we live these things not only here on a Sunday with each other, but out there in the world where he puts us, that others may be touched by mercy and grace and brought to bow the knee to the Savior. Let's pray.
this Trinity Sunday, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that as Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, you've shown yourself in Christ, that grace appeared. We thank you that by the power of the Spirit and the message of Jesus, you've brought so many of us to new life and washed us, given us not only a new start but a new heart. And by your Spirit we pray, help us to live in kindness and generosity and mercy and grace to please you in will and mind and body that others may see and be blessed and come to new life with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.